Man, aren't you glad that the, the same God of 2022 is the same God of 2023? And His mercies are new every morning, and He's an unchanging God, and I'm so thankful for that. Happy New Year, and it's so good to see you on this very first day of a brand new year. Those of you who may be visiting with us or guests on this New Year's Day, we're so glad that you're here. I can't think of a better place to be than with the people of God, my church family on New Year's Day. You know, we got to be together on Christmas Day, and we get to be together on New Year's Day. Now, some of y'all look a little tired this morning. I think you might have been partying a little bit too much last night. Someone asked me earlier if I watched the ball drop last night, and I said, absolutely not. And uh, I was so glad to be able to go to bed about 10, 1030. Of course, it sounded like World War III started in our neighborhood about midnight. And uh, anyway, I'm so glad uh, that we're in a new year. God's been so faithful. You know, I know it's only a calendar date, but there's something about the new year that just seems to speak of new opportunity. And yet the fact of the matter is, our faith and our confidence is not in a date on the calendar because as far as dates on a calendar are concerned, January 1 is no different from December 31. But I think it was Warren Wiersbe who said that the Christian life is a series of new beginnings. And so aren't you glad that in Jesus Christ, old things have passed away and all things have become new? And so that's true, and our hope and our confidence, and uh, it's always in Jesus. If you've got your Bible, I invite you to turn with me to the third chapter of Exodus. I, I do want to say this while you're turning there. 2022 has been just a tremendous year in the life of our church. It's been a great year of growth. We've seen a lot of new folks come into our church family this year. I think somewhere around 150-plus additions to our church family uh, in 2022. Now, listen remarkably, you've been so generous too in, in 2022, in particular the last few months. Uh, we're in the, ending this calendar year close to a $150,000 budget surplus in your giving. Now, I hesitate to tell you that because I don't want you to take your foot off the gas pedal, but praise God for your faithfulness. And, and also, um, Looks like our Lottie Moon Christmas offering may be somewhere up around 100, close to $190,000. And if that's, the, if that's true, I don't know that I ever remember it being that high. And so, folks, you've been generous, and, and God has just been so faithful to us, and we've got so much to be thankful for, and I'm so thankful. And, and God has entrusted us with so much. And you know, here's the thing, to whom much has been given, much is required. And, and there's a world around us that is in need. And my challenge to you, I think, on this New Year's Day is going to be a challenge of calling. Will we move into a new year really with a renewed sense of divine calling upon our lives? And really, that's what this passage of Exodus chapter 3 illustrates in such a profound way. The fact of the matter is there are a lot of people who are bored and unfulfilled in life. I think about all of the celebrations on New Year's Eve, you know, Times Square, places around the world, capital cities, packed with just scores and scores of people celebrating and maybe putting their hopes in, in a new calendar date and that kind of thing. And yet, it won't be but two or three more days and they're going to find themselves right back to the same old boredom of life. Perhaps wondering if there's a deeper sense of purpose 
and a mission that they exist for. And, and this is not just true of the world, but I even think within the church, uh, there are so many folks that seem to just be afflicted with this constant sense of, this nagging sense that there's got to be some meaningful purpose that I'm supposed to be a part of. And yet, they, they can't really wrap their mind around what that is. So in the meantime, they may, they may sit in church, listen to sermons, and place something in the offering plate whenever it comes around, maybe behave the best they can, and yet wonder if when they get to heaven, they're going to be chastised for failing to do whatever it was that God wanted them to do. And they go through life with just this, this foggy, uh, unclear sense of what it is that God really wants me to do. And then they gravitate toward lesser things and try to find a sense of fulfillment often in lesser things. Kind of reminds me about a guy, a California guy I read about. His name was Larry Walters, who made headlines some years ago for something crazy. Larry Walters went to the local Army-Navy surplus store, and he bought 75 used weather balloons, which he then inflated with helium, he attached them to a lawn chair that he had secured to the back of his pickup truck. Now, with several of his buddies watching, Larry climbed into the chair, he settled in, and he had a friend cut the rope. Now, he was hoping to observe the neighborhood from just slightly a different angle and gain a new perspective on his life. And he took nothing with him but a peanut butter sandwich and a fully loaded BB gun. Two and a half hours later, the Los Angeles International Airport I'd reported an unidentified flying object in disguise above LAX at nearly 16,000 feet. <laughs> Lawn Chair Larry, as he's now infamously remembered, was nearly three miles into the sky, 100 miles away from his original launch site. Now you can look this up, and you can read the transcript, but the pilot of the 737 who first spotted Larry said this to air traffic control, well, I see what looks like a perfectly still man sitting in a, is it a lawn chair? And I think he's holding a rifle. <laughs> and so in a remarkable rescue stunt, SWAT teams lassoed Larry, who had passed out in the chair, and they ferried him safely to the ground. Now, his intention had been to slowly float up to the right altitude, use his BB gun to pop the balloons one by one to slowly get back down to the ground. However, when he was cut loose from his pickup truck, eyewitnesses said that he shot up into the air as if he had been fired from a cannon. <laughs> Larry panicked. He passed out, <laughs> back on the ground after being revived to consciousness, he was interviewed by an interviewer who asked him a series of three questions. The first question, Larry, were you scared? His answer, yep. The second question, Larry, would you do it again? His answer, nope. And the third question, Larry, why did you do it to begin with? To which Larry said, I guess I just got tired of sitting around. Now, I don't know about you. I don't want to go into the new year with a sense of complacency. 
And yet, when I get tired of sitting around, maybe it's just a reminder to me that I'm failing to live out the purpose and the mission and the calling that God has placed upon my life as a disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, folks, how can we be bored in life as believers when there is a world around us that is lost and without Jesus Christ? How can I be bored in life and, and, and try to find some type of meaning and satisfaction in lesser things when the God of grace and glory and unrivaled majesty and power has called me as his own? And so this passage of Scripture in the third chapter of Exodus is really a powerful passage of Scripture as it relates to this issue of calling. And so here we discover that the calling of God was placed upon Moses' life. Moses, he has an encounter with God at the burning bush, and yet from that encounter, Moses is sent on a mission. So Exodus 3, verse 1, we'll read together the Bible says that Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian. And he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. The angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. He looked, and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. And Moses said, I will turn aside to see this great sight, why the bush is not burned. When the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, God called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses. And he said, here I am. Then he said, do not come near. Take your sandals off your feet, for the place on which you were standing is holy ground. And he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. Then the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who were in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings, and I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey, to the place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And now behold, the cry of the people of Israel has come to me, and I have also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppress them. Come, I will send you to Pharaoh that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? He said, But I will be with you, and this shall be the sign for you that I have sent you. When you have brought the people of Egypt, when you've brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. Then Moses said to God, If I come to the people of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, What is his name? What shall I say to them? Now listen to this. God said to Moses, I am who I am, or I am that I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, say this to the people of Israel, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. 
This is my name forever, and thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. And we'll stop reading right there. I want to speak this morning from this subject, responding to the call of God. One thing to pay close attention to in this passage is the emphasis that's placed upon God's call of Moses. Now, one of the most simple words in the English language is that word call. We understand what that word means. We use it on a regular basis. The word call is one of the most common words in our vocabulary. For example, we call our kids to come to the dinner table in hopes that they will respond. We call someone on the telephone. A church calls a pastor and hope that he will come and be their shepherd. When you're called by your employer, you know that that has some sense of urgency about it. When we were kids, we all feared being called to the principal's office. There was something about that summons that just terrorized us. But that's what really a call is. It's a summons of some sort. And so really there are all kinds of calls. But most important is the divine sense of call. We discover from Exodus chapter 3 that it's God who takes the initiative to call out to Moses. And so all of this brings up that very important issue of calling. What does it mean to have the call of God upon your life? God called Moses, but does God still call us to serve him in some capacity today? And if he does, how does he do it? How might I know that God is calling me? Now, obviously, God's call of Moses at the burning bush, this was unique in redemptive history in the sense that this is not normal experience God is uniquely calling Moses and giving Moses a unique task. However, there is a sense in which every Christian has a calling upon his or her life. And someone says, well, I understand that my pastor has the call of God on his life. I understand that missionaries have the call of God upon their life. But I don't know that I have the call of God upon my life, pastor. I'm just a regular Christian. To which I would say, just a regular Christian. What do you think that that means to begin with? And folks, what we've done often in the church is we've we've often sort of said, okay, well, there's only a few people who are really called to the work of Christian service. There are only a few unique people who are called to ministry, but the rest of us are just average, ordinary folks. When in reality, the Word of God teaches that because of the finished work of Jesus Christ, and the indwelling Holy Spirit in you as a disciple of Jesus Christ, an adopted son or daughter of God, you have a divine calling that's been placed upon your life, whether you realize that or not. And so the call of God is not something that's so mysterious and mystical as we've made it out to be. I don't believe that it's that complicated. Now, granted, I do believe that God still calls those to serve in vocational forms of Christian service, but... The distinction between vocational service and volunteer service, it's not a a distinction of value, but one of function. Doesn't mean that one is more important than the other. Because the reality is, all of us have the call of God upon our life. Now, the Bible actually teaches that there are really three general callings that each of us have as the children of God. Uh, The first is the call to salvation. 
And oftentimes in the Bible, that word call, the New Testament word is a Greek word, kaleo. We get the English word call from this word, but that's the word that's most often used to refer to God's initiative in bringing people to Christ, who then participate with God in his redemptive work in the world. And the Apostle Paul uses this language of calling in Romans chapter 8. He's clear when he describes believers as those who are the called according to God's own purposes. So there's the call to salvation. And then there's the call to sanctification. And that applies to every Christian. This is the call to pursue Christ-likeness in your life as a child of God. Believers have been called to holiness and separation from the world. Now, that doesn't mean we retreat from the world, but it means that we're distinct. We've been set apart by God for himself, and yet we've been given a very distinct, clear mission. Uh, Peter uses this language in 1 Peter chapter 1 when he says, as obedient children, don't be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who has called you is holy, you also be holy in all of your conduct. So there's the call to salvation. There's the call to sanctification. That's followed up by the call to service. We've all been called to serve God in some capacity. All of us have been called to serve the Lord in a way that is according to our giftings. We've all been uniquely gifted by God. Uh, It's not that some are called by Christ and then go on to service, but that to be called by Christ is to be called to service. God doesn't invite some to be the servants and others to be the served, but all of us are called to be the servants. And so if you're a Christian, as someone who's come to know the Lord Jesus Christ in a personal way, that means that you've received the divine call upon your life to make Christ known to a world that's in the dark. Again, Peter says this in 1 Peter 2, 9, you're a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. Listen to this a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. So the idea is I've been saved and set apart by God for this very specific act of service, making him known to a lost and dying world. It's the Great Commission. Jesus comes along and he calls his disciples and he says, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. That is, you follow me, you spend time with me. To spend time with me is then to be sent out on mission. That's true of the disciples, that's true of every Christian, that's true of every person who's received the call of God upon his or her life. That's true of Moses in Exodus chapter 3. Because you'll notice that God is calling out to Moses. God is first calling Moses to himself. And then, as the result of being called by God to himself, God then sends Moses out to Egypt with a very specific task. And so there's something in this passage that we really can come to learn about what it means to live with a divine sense of calling upon our lives as the people of God. Responding to this call involves availability. It involves teachability. It involves dependability. So let's look at each of those uh, individually. Number one, the first lesson I see here in Exodus chapter 3 about responding to the call of God is that it involves availability. And then the question that I should ask myself is this question, am I in a place where I can clearly discern the will of God? 
Now, we've already seen at this point in his life, Moses has been in the wilderness of Midian for approximately 40 years. He is a shepherd who's been tending the flocks of his father-in-law. His life is one of obscurity that's held in contrast to his former life in Egypt. And so all that Moses had experienced thus far in his life really had been preparing him carefully crafted by the hand of God to bring him to this moment of encounter where he receives a divine call. And so it's the providence of God that's been working behind the scenes in Moses' life, leading him to this remote place in the wilderness where he's going to meet God face to face. Moses is going to come to know God in a personal way, and then he's going to be called to serve God in a very practical way. And so Moses sees something that arrests his attention. It's a bush that's burning, but it's not being consumed. And so Moses stops what he's doing. He goes in for a closer look. And verse 2 says, it's the angel of the Lord who is appearing to him out of the burning bush in a flame of fire in the midst of the bush. And the idea is it's no ordinary flame, but this is the flame of God's manifest presence. Now, verse 3, Moses says, I'm going to turn aside and see this great sight, why the bush is not being burned. But folks, pay close attention to the fact that verse 4 says that it's only as Moses turns aside that God calls out to him from the midst of the bush. Verse 4 says, when the Lord saw that Moses had turned aside. That is, when Moses stopped what he was doing, Moses is in a place where he's listening. Moses is in a position of availability. And it's interesting to me that it's at this moment that God begins to call out to him from the midst of the burning bush. And then what's his response? Moses responds by saying, here I am. That's the attitude of availability. He's placing himself at the disposal of the one who is calling him. And by the way, that's the only right response to the call of God upon your life. Here I am, Lord. And that's the way that little Samuel responds to the Lord when the Lord was calling out to him there in the night. Samuel was probably around 12 years of age or so, serving in the tabernacle in Shiloh. God calls out to him by night, Samuel, Samuel, to which he responds, here I am. But little Samuel gets up and he runs to the priest, Eli, thinking that it's Eli who's calling out to him. And that happens three times before the old priest realizes that it's God who's calling the boy. And Eli says to Samuel, the next time that the Lord calls, say this, speak, Lord, for your servant is listening. In other words, make yourself available and ready to receive the word that God would reveal to you. And sure enough, God calls again, and Samuel responds with availability. Now, this is the same way that the prophet Isaiah responds to the call of God. We read about it in Isaiah chapter 6. God asks the question, whom shall I send? Who will go for us? The nation of Israel had been disobedient. They needed the Lord. They were in a place of spiritual complacency. God asked the question, who will go for us? Whom shall I send? And Isaiah responds by saying, here I am, send me. And so it's with these very same words that Moses is responding with availability to the call of God. He expresses a readiness to listen to the one that's calling out to him from the midst of the burning bush. 
And folks, don't miss this because one of the marks of a faithful servant, it's an attentive ear, an immediate response that's willing and ready to do whatever it is that God would have us do. It's the attitude reflected by Peter and Andrew in, in, in Mark chapter 1 when Jesus comes along and Jesus says, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. You know what the Bible says they did? It says immediately they left their nets and they followed him. They responded with eagerness. They responded with anticipation. They responded because they were available to the master's use. And so here's the point. God draws us into his presence so that he can then reveal himself to us in a powerful way and then turn right around and send us out into a world on mission. You realize that our God is a God who's on mission? Why do you think that he saved you? He didn't just save you to sit you on a church pew. He didn't just save you to give you a place in heaven when you die. He saved you so that you can know him and then so that you can be used by him as an instrument in the world that desperately needs him, a world that desperately needs the gospel message. So availability, am I in the place where I can clearly discern the will of God in my life? Well, Moses is. He's in the wilderness. He's in a place that's free from distraction. And he responds with this attitude of availability. Now, number two, there's a second lesson here concerning this call of God and how we respond to the call of God. Uh, it involves teachability. And the lesson of teachability, here's the question to ask. Do I possess the humility that's required to determine the will of God? Having made myself available in the place where I can discern the will of God, am I teachable? Have I humbled myself? Am I willing to do the will of God in my life? You get to verse 5, and you notice that God says to Moses, don't come any closer, but take your sandals off of your feet because the place upon which you're standing is holy ground. And God then begins to reveal himself to Moses. The fact that he's the God of I'm the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, the God of the patriarchs. And so God then gives Moses this instruction from the burning bush, which Moses obeys. He's come to know God in a very personal way, and, and now he's humbling himself in the presence of Almighty God. Moses hides his face when he learns that it's God who's speaking to him. He's, he's afraid to look at God. It's the fear of reverential worship. It's the humility that's evident in the life of a person who's deeply aware of his own sin and need in the light of God's wonderful countenance. Which, by the way, there's no way that a man or a woman can really strut when they're in the presence of Almighty God. Because to be in the presence of God is to be reminded of your own inadequacy. To be in the presence of God is to be painfully aware of your own profound sense of need. And so when you meet the Lord, pride melts away in reverential awe. And it's the kind of fear that leads to wisdom. It's the kind that the Proverbs describes in Proverbs 1, verse 7, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, knowledge of the Holy One. This is, this is insight. And so God tells Moses to take his shoes off 
The ground upon which you're standing is holy, not because there's anything special about the dirt itself, but because of the manifest presence of God that set that piece of ground apart. And so Moses gladly obeys, and he removes his sandals from his feet. And so here's the picture that you have. Moses at the burning bush, he's barefoot in the presence of God. In fact, in ancient days, slaves went barefoot before their master. And so Moses is humbly obeying God, and he's thereby indicating his willingness to serve by taking off his sandals. He's adopting the posture of a servant. And by the way, this ought to be reminiscent of something that we read about in John chapter 13 in the upper room when Jesus is there with his disciples. And the Bible says that the master girds himself with a towel and he takes a basin of water and then he gets down and he, he begins to wash the feet of his own disciples whose sandals had been removed. And then, it's just a vivid illustration of what he had said earlier when they were arguing among themselves about who was great and who gets to sit at your right hand in power and that kind of thing. And Jesus says, listen, the Gentiles and those who were the lords of the Gentiles, they lorded over each other. Jesus says, it ought not be that way among you. Whoever would be great among you must be your servant. Whoever would be first must become slave of all. Because even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. So you see Moses, he's barefoot at this burning bush. He's listening for his next instructions. And so it's the attitude of teachability. And God's going to reveal his heart to Moses and the fact that he's a savior and the fact that, that, that God sees the suffering and the affliction and the oppression that his people were under there in their Egyptian bondage. And Moses discovers that it's the heart of God to lead his people up out of their bondage as their savior. And in verse 10, Moses discovers that God wants to use him as an instrument in that process. Now Moses himself is not going to be the savior of Israel, but it's God who's the savior of Israel, yet God wants to use Moses as an instrument in a very strategic way. So the lesson of availability, have I made myself available or am I just too busy? Will I just be too busy in 2023 for God to use? And will I possess a teachable spirit in this new year? One in which I've come to know God in a very personal way so that I can then be sent by God and serve God in an obedient way. And then that brings up a third lesson, and the third lesson is one of dependability. Availability, teachability, and now dependability. And the question you should ask is this question, will I obey the calling of God on my life to do the will of God? So notice God's very specific. In verse 10, he says, come, Moses, I'm going to send you to Pharaoh so that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, up out of Egypt. And notice how Moses responds in verse 11. Moses says to God, who am I? Who am I that you would call me to go to Egypt and confront the most powerful man in the world at the time to bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? So dependability. Now listen, don't get the idea that it's God who's depending upon Moses as if God can't get the job done himself. No, the dependability that I'm talking about is the kind of dependability that Moses will need. He'll go, he's going to have to be dependent upon God. 
Now, folks, I think sometimes we forget that God, he doesn't need us. He doesn't need me. He doesn't need you. But somehow, in the mystery of his providence, God has chosen to use us as instruments of blessing. God's chosen to use us uh, as his mouthpiece in a world that desperately needs to hear the good news of salvation. And so Moses asked this question, who am I? Now, it's a good question to ask. And I think it's a question that really reflects Moses' sense of humility, and he understands his own inadequacy. Moses has been stripped of his pride at this point in his life. He, he realizes that when he tried to deliver Israel all those years ago, he had been a failure, a spectacular failure in the process. And God, I'm a nobody. But the second question Moses is going to ask comes a little bit later. He's going to ask God, who are you? Which, by the way, those are the two most important questions any person can ever have answered in their life. Who am I? And God, who are you? But you see, the first question really won't be answered until you understand the second question. It's only when you come to know who God is that you really come to understand who you are. There are a lot of people in the world today who are trying to find some type of purpose and some type of meaning behind their life, and they're puzzled over the existence of their life, and they're wondering why they're here. Who am I is the question perhaps they're asking, and that question really won't get its answer until they understand who God is. Because here's the thing, when you understand who God is and you see God in the light of his grace and the light of his glory, it's only then that you can understand who you are. Frail, needy, a sinner in need of his saving grace and mercy. And so God reveals himself to Moses. And and listen, we'll come back to this later on, but God reveals his name, his covenant name to Moses. It's the name I am. Moses says, let's just say I go, and the people ask, who is this God who sent you? What's his name? God responds, you tell the people this, I am has sent you. That's the covenant name of God. He's the self-existent God, the eternal, self-sufficient, inexhaustible God. (laughs) You move into a new year, you're worried about what the year might hold for you and your family? Listen, be encouraged with the fact that God is I am. He's already there in the future. He's already large and in charge. He's already sovereign and in control of your future. And your life is in his hands. Moses, you tell them that I am has sent you. Moses asks the question, who am I? And God responds by saying, it's not who you are, it's who I am. And he reminds Moses in verse 12 where ultimately his power and confidence will come from. Moses says, I'm, or God says to Moses, but I will be with you. I'm going to send you, and I'm promising my presence with you, and that's what's going to make all the difference. Now, I've got to stop here, but here's the question that I really want to leave you with. We're here on the threshold of a brand new year. Will we move into a new year with a renewed sense of calling upon our lives? as men and women of faith. Jesus says to his disciples, as the Father has sent me into the world, even so I'm sending you. That doesn't just apply to vocational ministers. It's not a calling that just applies to a pastor or someone who draws a salary from a congregation or someone who's a missionary working for a mission board. No, it's a calling that's placed upon every life 
who's in Jesus Christ. Every single person who knows Jesus, you've got a profound sense of calling upon your life. You say, I'm a stay-at-home mom. What can I do? Let me tell you something. You've been entrusted with a sacred calling and pouring yourself into the lives of those little ones and sharing the gospel and pointing them to Jesus. You say, Pastor, I'm just a, I'm a, I'm a, machine, a machine operator. I'm a machinist working in a machine shop. What can I do? Listen, when you go in and you clock in tomorrow, you realize that you're there and you're sent by Almighty God and you're on mission for King Jesus. And you be the absolute best machine operator that you can be to the glory of God and then do it strategically for the glory of God. And you shine like a burning bush, pointing people to the hope of Jesus Christ. That same calling's upon your life if you're a school teacher, a businessman or woman. God's given you some platform. He's given you some gift. He's given you some passion and interest. Listen, use that strategically to advance the mission of God in the world. Today's the very first day of 2023. What if we made a commitment and said, Lord, by your grace, in your strength, and with your blessing, I'm going to resolve to end this year with someone at my side that I've led to Christ who'll be here with me in church the very last Sunday of this new year. And then you go about your life not looking for the next thrill, not bored and distracted like lawn chair Larry, looking for something to give you your next kick. But no, you realize you are, you are called by God. You're living your life strategically on mission for God. And then you become a catalyst. Would you stand with me as we pray this morning? Responding to the call of God, may we be available, teachable, and demonstrate dependence upon the God who's promised to be with us. In fact, compare what God says to Moses at the burning bush to what Jesus says to his disciples in Matthew chapter 28. Didn't Jesus promise his presence with his disciples? Didn't Jesus say, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth? And in light of that authority, go and make disciples. Baptize those who believe in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teach them to obey everything that I've commanded you. And Jesus said, and lo, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. The great I am has promised his presence with us, and he's done something even better than that. He's placed his presence in us through the resident helper, the Holy Spirit. So that, in a very real sense, every Christian in some capacity functions like a burning bush in the world in whom God has placed his spirit, through whom God is issuing this call, come to Jesus. Believe the gospel. A lot of people are so, they think, okay, well, the will of God, I'm just waiting for a voice from heaven. Why are you going to wait for a voice when God's already given you a verse? A lot of people who are claiming to wait for a voice, they've laid this word aside. All that we need has already been supplied. Will we go in Jesus' name? Lord, thank you for your word. God, thank you for the hope and the calling that's been placed upon our lives as your people. And God, may you use us in some capacity to point others to the hope of Jesus Christ. God, may we be a church 
that is absolutely set on fire with a sense of mission, Lord, right here in our city and points beyond. In Jesus' name.